I mean, it was just crazy. I don't remember who or when they told me that he died. I, I really don't remember that. But I remember sitting behind a bush and just rocking back and forth. Welcome to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. I'm Petra Belzebor, and this is the place to discuss tips, tricks, and hacks to build your resilience through your worst rock bottoms and get you to a place of success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life, professionals, individuals who've been through their own adversity, and allow them to share their authentic and real life stories, opinions, and ideas about how to utilize our worst rock bottoms and allow them to catapult us into success. Welcome to the show. Welcome everyone to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. I'm very excited all the way from Orlando, Florida. Uh, on Skype with me today, I've got Karen Millsap. She is a soul care coach and we vibed off this uh, recently. The idea of being a facilitator that brings empathy and compassion into the workplace. Uh, and so we connected not too long ago. Uh, so I think we just couldn't stop talking, right? And uh, talking about empathy, compassion and our stories and what brought us to this place. Welcome to the show, Karen. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I can't even tell you how excited I am. I can't put it into words how happy I am to have this conversation with you. <laughs> oh, that's so good. <laughs> Usually I'm the most excited, but you're excited too, so that's excellent. Yeah. This should be good. Um, Lots of energy. <laughs> so much energy. Even though we're both exhausted, you've, you've got kids, I've got kids. It's just like, oh, an early start. But who cares? When you're doing the right thing, right? Alignment. Yep. It's all good. It's all good. Um, so... Uh, what are you passionate about at the moment? Give, give the listeners just a little context about what you do and, you know, what does it mean to bring empathy and compassion into the workplace? Yeah, I actually live in two different worlds because I serve organizations in that space where I am teaching them how do we bring compassion and empathy into our day-to-day -day interactions in business because it's just awkward. I don't know why, but it is, you know? And so I love that space, but I equally love the space of helping individuals learn how to build healthy habits, which creates a solid foundation to navigate any hardship that you could withstand. And I think that's a conversation we're not having because when we go through different hardships, whether it's cancer or divorce or um, a, a, a tragic death or miscarriage, you know, even if any of that, we don't have those conversations. And so I think we're just socially awkward. And that I also think that we're socially suppressing some very natural emotions. And so my heart is also on fire to just create a conversation around hardship, but also to create a foundation that will help us to navigate it with clarity. What do you think people are scared of? Like often there's fear underneath the awkwardness, right? Of the conversation, like what, what what's going on underneath for people? Yeah, you know, I'll use myself as an example because when I was 29, my husband was murdered. Um, and it wasn't just that he died in an accident. It wasn't that, you know, he was sick and we took, t we knew that there was time to kind of grieve that. Um, and n no one loss or one way that somebody dies is greater than the other. But that type of loss, that sudden loss, that tragic loss at the hands of someone else, it brings a lot of emotions. I mean, especially emotions of the unknown. So because my mind was going crazy, personally, I wasn't sharing everything that was going through my mind because of one, I couldn't sort through it. I couldn't even put it into words. It was so heavy and complex. And two, once I was able to 
identify what those complex emotions were, or even if I could see a thought and it was negative, I didn't want to share it because I didn't want my emotions to be a burden to anybody else. Now, I think mm. there are lots of reasons, but that those were mine. Well, and what, because, because I hear this a lot, this idea of being worried that we'll be a burden on somebody else. And we're going to go into more depth in, in your story because there's so much there, right? Um, but, but I'm just curious about that bit. So, so feeling that we're a burden, like where does that come from? For me, um, I saw how I, obviously I was devastated, but the people around me who loved Richard just as much, you know, family and friends, um, they were also devastated. So I didn't want to unload all of those complex things that I was feeling because I knew that they were handling their own. And so I didn't want to just dump it on them. I felt like it would be, I don't know, honestly, the best word I could say is a burden. You know, I don't know if inconvenience is really the right word. I just didn't want it to all lay them. Um, I didn't want it to lay heavier on them than what they were already feeling from, you know, them experiencing the same loss. Absolutely. And so everyone's experiencing grief and loss in a, in a different way, a different kind of trauma. And we, and we sort of hold it all in. Um, before we but go, I will say this two me. years after my husband died, my brother-in-law said to me over Thanksgiving, he said, Karen, we want to talk to you about Richard and what you've gone through, but we don't know how to approach it with you. And we don't want to make you feel uncomfortable. So of course I start bawling, crying. And I said, well, I haven't wanted to talk to you about it because I didn't want that to be a burden to you. So we actually lived in these separate spaces, feeling the exact same thing. And you know what connected us? That loss, those feelings. So if we had just talked about it from the beginning, but it was a beautiful thing for him to even be vulnerable and say, like, I want to talk to you. I want to be there. How do we do this? You know, we're kind of on pins and needles. We don't know what to say. And it's not that we never talked about Richard. We did, but in more of a way of celebrating his life and just, you know, mentioning him so that my son would know his dad, but not about the hard, difficult, yucky pain. And then when we did that, I mean, it was like a whole new level of healing for the entire family. And it's almost like perhaps you needed the two years to each be figuring this stuff out on, on yeah. your own. But I also think maybe there's a society thing of, you know, that, that worry, that awkwardness, let's not talk about it. Because two years is a long time for people to also be struggling sort of in a sense on their own. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, exactly. I'm curious about before uh, Richard was murdered, before this incident took place, so just growing up and stuff, do you, would you consider yourself like a resilient person? Do you think your childhood or other things that happened sort of set you up? Not that anyone could deal with this kind of tragedy or yeah. be prepared for it, you know what I mean? But I'm just wondering, do you feel pretty strong in your resilience before this happened? Yeah, you know, I... Um... I, somebody asked me this question before, and I think what I can kind of attest it to is uh, my family was an Air Force family, so we traveled all over. You know, we lived in different parts of the United States. We lived in Japan for a while. Listen, I thought I was Japanese until we moved back, and I was like, wait, when are we moving home? Like, why are we What's here? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I think that part of my ability to, we'll say, adapt to change is that I did that as a child, you know, in the Air Force. Um, I do believe that I had a natural, I did a personality test not long ago. It was very interesting to see that I naturally live with a hopeful spirit. And so I could be in the middle of this tragedy like I was and look diligently for the silver lining. And so as I look for that, part of the, I guess, uh, 
the problem could be that I suppress all the things that are hard. But thankfully, I recognize in this particular situation that I couldn't suppress it because it would manifest itself in unhealthy ways. So although I wasn't talking to my family per se, I was learning how to handle those emotions and work through the depression and work through the dark thoughts um, by just facing it. But I think very naturally my uh, spirit of, okay, how can I get through this to make it better? That's ultimately what shined through because at the end of um, uh, you know, a very tough two months of just like not really knowing what was going on around me. I remember specifically feeling that I was going to take this pain. I was going to turn it into purpose and I was going to use it to help others. I remember it was November, which was only about four months after my husband died. I was laying in bed and that came to me so clear. I feel like God just dropped that on me. Like, no, here, here you go. There's going to be something that you can do with this. It's not for nothing. His death wasn't in vain. And so I think that, again, that's kind of where my natural state came. But I did have to develop those habits to build that resilience. And so they kind of played off each other, I guess. Sure. Um, tell us a bit about Richard. What was he like? Oh, man. You know, sometimes people will say, oh, are you going to get married again? I'm like, where do I go from there? Because he was just, he was so energetic. Um, he wanted to help people in this way that was just outside of the box, right? He himself went through a transformative period. And because he came out on, you know, this other side and still, I mean, nobody's perfect. It's a life is a journey, right? Sure. But he had come overcome so many hurdles at this point when he died that it made such an impact. It actually makes sense. It makes sense that that would be his last, you know, six months to a year because he did so much. I mean, we, when we had this CrossFit gym, the reason it was different was because he, uh, he liked the idea of CrossFit. But his own spin was meeting people where they were and helping them, not bringing them into the box and making them do a lot of Olympic you know, weightlifting if they couldn't do it. I mean, we had an 82-year-old woman in there who really? would come and work out with Richard. Yes, yeah. she was amazing. So he just had a really big heart, extremely generous, um, very, very loving, an amazing father. The number one thing that I think people would always remember is that he always had his kids with him. So he's just a great guy. Sounds uh, amazing and definitely like you found some, some purpose within sort of the, the horrific tragedy. What was that day like? Mm. It started off like any other day. Mm. You know, I was a recruiter for a national home building company. So I was at work. We were texting back and forth. You know, he's like, hey, babe, don't forget to do this. I'm like, oh, thank you so much for leaving that out this morning. You know, just kind of checking with each other. And then um, he texted me to say, uh I'm sorry, I text him to say that I had interviews that evening. So did he want me to come pick the kids up because the kids were with him at the gym? Um, did he want me to come pick them up and, uh, and then just have them settled at home? I have a stepdaughter and I also have my son who is two years old at the time. And so I picked them up. I took them over to, uh, or I took my stepdaughter over to her mom's house. She was going to spend time there and then he was going to pick her up on the way home. I got back to the house. I got my son settled in and he was watching TV and I was doing an interview and, uh, the phone interview was on my house phone, but I noticed that my cell phone started buzzing probably about halfway through. And so, you know, I'm not going to answer it. I don't, but then it was buzzing again and it was buzzing more. And so I finally looked it over and I had several missed calls from one woman who was one of our gym members. And in the moment that I saw that, 
I thought to myself, something must have happened to Richard. Maybe he broke his arm or no, if he broke his arm, he would be calling me. So maybe he hit his head. Now all of this happens. You know how our thoughts yeah, go yeah, yeah. super fast. So as those thoughts go through my head, she's calling again. And so I had just asked a question of the candidate and was able to put him on mute when I answered her call. So I heard screaming, just absolute chaos. And I could only make out one word and that was shot. So immediately my body responded. I just started shaking. I had to gain just enough composure. I even remember Petra going up into Uh, I was downstairs. I went up into my closet and I got on the phone with him really quick. And I said, I took him off mute and I said, you know, thank you so much for your time. We'll get back with you with next steps. Like I just had to get something out (laughs) to get him off the phone. Yeah. And I'm in my closet for a second. Like, what the F do I do? Like I have no, I, so my body's still shaking. I'm thinking, okay, get Caleb to my neighbor's house. So I pick him up. I'm like bouncing him a little bit. I say to them, I have no idea what happened. I just know something happened at the gym. Please watch Caleb. You know, I'll be back. I had two more interviews that were scheduled for that evening. I call my boss and I'm just like crying. I said, I don't know what happened. And he's like, wait, hold on. Stay on the phone with me. It was so wonderful of him. He said, stay on the phone with me until you get there. And so I go like a hundred and something down the highway. I'm flying. Sure. And it wasn't until the light right before the gym that I thought to myself, why am I not on my way to the hospital? Mm. Because now by this time, it takes me about maybe 10 minutes to get to the gym. But she had already been calling, remember, before that. So we'll say a, a time frame, and I don't know exactly, but maybe 30 minutes have passed. Mm. So I pull up, and it is just like a scene out of a movie. I mean, there are first responders everywhere, you know, the police, it's taped off, there's lights, there's news reporters out there already with their vans set up. And I mean, it was just crazy. I don't remember who or when they told me that he died. I I really don't remember that. But I remember sitting behind a bush and just rocking back and forth and just saying, this isn't real. This is not real, like over and over and over. And, um, and that was, I, I don't even, it was, it's so crazy because in a second, your life can completely change in a second, your life can change. And you have no idea because again, I started off the day, Hey babe. Yeah. Thank you for this. Like, you know, and by the end of it, I'm a widow and he was murdered and this person got away. It's five years and we still don't know who the person was. Really? So it's just, yeah, that day was the ultimate roller coaster. And and nothing can prepare you for that sort of shock, the sort of trauma, the sort of what next. Like you you don't even have to factor in a grief process or much less parenting through a grief process or making arrangements or sort of all the things, right? And so right. from that trauma place, I, I, I know your energy now and the, the amount of purpose and the amount of energy and, and, and support that you give to other people, which is so outstandingly beautiful. Um, I feel like I love you. We're just, I just Thank sisters. I just feel like you've channeled all of that just horrific, horrific day into something so outstandingly beautiful. And, oh, and so I'm curious, as we call it, about the messy middle, right? 
And you said four months in, you, you start, you, you begin to understand that um, there must be some kind of purpose to that. But I know that that thought isn't the, the switch of it like... It was a fleeting thought. I right, mean, it came right. and it went. I was not, I could not hold on. As a matter of fact, I was like, no, God, that's not for me. You got the wrong person. Right. That's not That can't me. be true. It can't. No, like, exactly. You, that can't be true. It's like, I've, right. I have to experience this loss. His life is over. And you're going to say that to me? It's almost like hmm? rude, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. How dare you? I didn't Bloody dare you. No. Yes. Yeah. Well, exactly. I didn't sign up for this. It can be quite easy to feel like a, a victim and in a sense, and you are a victim of a violent crime that's affected your, your sort of family. I mean, I can imagine that the first, those couple of months, like immediately after the trauma were just a haze yeah, and just like, what was that like? Longer than that. I, you know, I feel like, so the, everybody's story has different dynamics, but in my story, I think what was so crazy is that Richard's death created a domino effect of other losses. I ended up losing, um, you know, relationships and friendships. I don't have a relationship with my stepdaughter anymore. You know, I haven't seen her since that happened because her, her mom hasn't allowed it. That's a grieving process. Um, I lost my house because I couldn't keep up with that house. One thing that people, um, a lot of people don't know is, so I tell people I lost relationships. I lost my house, my car, my job. I mean, all of this happened in a year. When I lost my car, it was because we had just purchased it in May. I think it was. He died in August. By October, I realized like, I can't afford this car. There's like, it's just not going to happen. Well, we had just gotten a bigger car because we were trying to have more kids at the time. So me losing that car was not losing the car. I, you know, could care less about the car. It was that I was saying goodbye to those dreams. That Everything it that stood, it represented. Yeah. Right. That's right. So it was the first year was really tough. I mean, I tried to see three different counselors and it just was not working. You know, I had a wonderful, loving woman who came over from my church who would just like want to um, pray with me. And I was just like, I can't take that. Like, I'm sorry. I'm just not receptive at this time. Yeah. Um, I had a friend, Jamie, who was my lifeline and she was my lifeline because she would just come over and literally lay on the ground with me. If that's where I was, she wouldn't do anything or say anything specific or perfect or right or whatever. She was just there. And so I did a TED talk, uh, in 2017 and I mentioned her as part of that story because I think it's so important that we release this pressure of showing up for other people thinking that we have to have the right words or be perfect in how we show up. Absolutely. Just be there. Right. Yeah. So I wanted to share that part of the story, but when she heard my TED talk, she had no idea. Now that was four years after Richard died. And she said to me, she said, I remember thinking and going home and telling my husband, I don't think I'm doing enough. I don't know what else to do. I'm not mm -hmm. sure how to show up. So she's watching my TED talk. She's like crying because she's like, I had no idea that it made that kind of impact on you. So I would say that even though his loss uh, or his death created a ripple effect of other losses, having that lifeline there, that person who's just like present and who's just like, whatever you need, you know, I got you. And there were other people too. Um, but that's kind of what helped me to face all of the ugly and uncomfortable emotions and not lose the rest of my life. Yes, I lost other things, but they, they stepped in and helped me to take care of basic needs that I just wouldn't have been top of mind because I was in such a fog, you know? You're just in crisis, but, right? Yeah. 
Exactly. And the best thing that I could do was just make sure that I ate something, that I drank some water, but more so that my son was taken care of. I took less care of myself and more care of my son because I just felt like I know that I have to do for him, even if I can't do for myself. And that's just what's like, I'll at least do that. At least that's, you know, I'm like, if I could do one thing today, good. I took care of him, you know? Um, but what really was the changing point for me was when I was prescribed some antidepressants and I was sitting there in my bathroom and I was looking at them and I'm just bawling thinking, is this what my life has come to, you know? Now, when I went to see the physician, I was like, is there a happy pill? Like, is there something that is going to make this <laughs> fog go away? Me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm like, give it to me now. Inject it. IV if you need to. Like, please help. And so I thought that that was going to be what helped, those antidepressants. Of course. <clears throat> Two days later, I... I'm in bed and I didn't even realize that I'd been in bed for two days straight. My parents were with me at the time, thank goodness. But my son at only two years old walks in and he says, mommy, are you going to get up today? Are you going to eat? And I thought to myself, I have two choices. I can either give up or I can get up and get up was like one step at a time, one moment at a time. So I think that's how I navigated those early days was just like, okay, I fed myself. Great. You know, okay, I, I got to work. Great. Okay, Caleb got a bath today. You know, great. Like it was just those little things because little habits start to create those changes and start to create a healthier mindset, but they do start little. And just like Richard's death created a ripple effect of bad, these little ha healthy habits started to create where the foundation that I was rebuilding my life on. And there's something so tragically beautiful of almost having your son as that protective factor, right? So, so that person that you have, you, you have to show up, you, you, yes. you've got to show up, you've got to help him survive and get his basic needs met, which in a way forces you to wake up just that little bit, that little one step at a time. Um, and so, okay, so you gradually start realizing that those small little habits and things, you know, but still in a survival one day at a time sort of place, right? Um, yes. Did you end up having grief therapy or trauma therapy or, or like something that helped in, in a bigger way? Or was it just a slow snowball effect of trying out new things, you know, to get you to a place uh, that you're at now? Yeah. Um, I did not have any kind of um, trauma therapy. And I actually think even five years later that I need to do that because there's just still some residual effects of me processing that. Um, but I did go to, interestingly enough, I went to two grief counselors and they did not help me. And one of them actually had even lost her husband only a few years before, but still what she told me, I was just like, that's, it's not sinking in. Do you, do you think you just weren't ready? Like sometimes there's just a timing thing with grief. Like it doesn't yeah. matter what the person's saying. It's just like, I'm not ready. I'm angry. I feel hurt. I'm a, you know, how am I going to survive? It's just primal, right? Right. I, I think that I was in a state, I couldn't retain anything that they were saying. It just sure. wasn't penetrating because I was so consumed with sadness. Yeah. And people who now reach out to me and something tragic has happened to either themselves or a friend, um, and they want to start the process, I'll say, well, I'm here for you, but I don't think that now is a good time, but I'm here for you. And the reason why, and it's usually when somebody says, I want you to talk to this person, I'll say to them, they might not be in a space to receive help, 
you can give them my information. And honestly, that's why I put a whole bunch of free information on my website. Because even if you don't have the energy to do counseling, if you can get some information that's just like you read it, you digest it, you try it a little bit, that's helpful, right? And so um, that's why I put so much content out there. I'm like, hey, you may be in a state where you can't really have a conversation, but at least you have something that can start to feed you. Um, so, but the two counselors, although they didn't help, the third one I went to was actually our premarital counselor. And the reason I went to her is because I was dealing with some, um, some other things that were just coming up and I couldn't wrap my mind around it. And she knew the backstory so she could help me work through that, but it was not helping me necessarily work through my grief. But what did help me was being able to accept what has happened and not live with things from the past that may be unsettled or are now unsettled because he's gone. And so that was a huge takeaway from her. She and I are still really, really dear friends. Um, but since I started on this work of helping people through their own journey, my mind has been open to a whole bunch of different kind of therapies. I mean, like muscle therapy and like um, there's this new one that I just heard about. Oh, my gosh. It's something with like your eye movement. EMDR. Yeah. Yes. But EMDR. it's one that was actually cut, that came uh, off of that called ART, A-R-T. Oh, right. Yeah. So, um, so as I'm learning about these, I'm like, great. As I learn about them, I'm helping other people to know more because I, I just was not in that space to even look for the resources or even I to know what to look for. Right. Exactly. Because, like, and, and nobody around me had gone through something like this. I was only 29 in no. a widow. So nobody could really say, Oh, this is what you should do. This is how, and Interestingly enough, I would look for those kind of resources of other widows online, like maybe Facebook. I would try and find some groups. And that started a year after he died because, again, I'm still feeling like I'm in a fog. There were so there were more groups that were happy being bitter and living in misery than there were that were uh, than there were groups that were stimulating positive conversations and emotional growth. You are so right. And I say that just from my, my cult background of people who've left and are survivors and, you know, we want to create community or there's a lot of uh, the idea of loss of belonging because you're the community you grew up in is now over there. You've got to fend for yourself. And I think that's what struck me is like the communities or the groups are all like, let's all hate the cult together or let's all hate the abuse or the things that happened, you know. And even now it's hard for me to find the people that have sort of my background who want together, want to get together to talk about the, the ways to be successful. And, um, there are successful people, but they cut, th- those are the ones that cut off the shame story about our past, yes. right? And so it's like it either never happened or let's all victim out about it and think about That's how so bad true. it is, right? Rather mm-hmm. than let's create communities that can support each other to share the little bits of learning or to hold each other when we're crying or to, you know, to just offer the the information and the support. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're in this place where, like, you don't have a blueprint for this. There's no sort of community. You're kind of looking, and it's not quite fitting fitting your uh, needs. And you get, at some point, you get this little thought that, ooh, there's some purpose in this pain, and you sort of go, fuck no. I'm not yeah, listening exactly. to that, right? <laughs> yeah. um, how did that that seed begin to sort of grow and develop into, into what you're doing now? Yeah. I said this to my mom the other day because I feel like I moved forward so much that I didn't really take time to look back. 
And the recent um, uh, segment that was on Good Morning America gave me that opportunity to kind of see how far I've come. I mean, I really feel like I haven't taken a breath. I've just been going, 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 going. And so when I took a second to think about it, the way I was able to explain it was the first habit that I created was around mindfulness. Okay. That was the very first thing because I thought to myself, the man who came in and killed my husband that morning, he could have said, I'm not going to do this on the drive there. He could have turned around when he pulled into the parking lot. He could have decided to not get out the car when he was standing there pointing the gun at my husband. He could have decided to not pull the trigger. So there are all of these different moments that one choice could have changed the trajectory of our story. So I realized, wait a minute, I have that same power in my choices. So what are my choices going to be? And so again, the first one being, how am I taking care of my mind? Cause that's where I was going crazy. Mm -hmm. That's where I was living in a space where I could either be now. Yes. We, our family was a victim of this yeah. heinous crime, hundred percent. but it was my choice. If I was going to live with a victim mindset, if you were going to stay so, there forever. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so what I did was I, for example, would stop listening to certain music that just wasn't giving off a good vibe. Um, I wouldn't watch shows that were, um, you know, suspenseful or violent or anything, you know, degrading women, like anything that was negative, mm. I removed from my life. I mean, I was now that I look again, I didn't realize it at that time. I no. was just kind of like, that doesn't feel good. It was more so my energy was like, I don't want that. Like, why would I want even more you know, yeah. negativity? Yeah. So when I started to create those healthy boundaries, and that's the very first thing I teach people this thing called the heal method. Okay. And heal H E A L stands for different parts of how you take care of yourself to create this solid foundation. And so H stands for healthy boundaries. While yes, that means with people and negative people, it also means from what you're watching and consuming and social media, like you have to create, yeah, you have to create mental and emotional boundaries. That was the very first thing that I did. Now, when I'm removing that, because again, we are easily distracted and kind of need to be a stimulated beings, right? I swapped that out for things that were like, uh, like Tony Robbins and, uh, Les Brown or Brene Brown also. No, they're not related. If anybody doesn't know they're those not. two people, no. vulnerability, <laughs> motivation, yes, shame. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I would do it in small doses. So okay. for me, on my personal healing journey, before I'm even sharing this with other people, I would just go on to YouTube uh -huh. and I would look up short videos just to feel good. Just yeah, to, yeah. I would also listen to sermons, even though I wasn't going to church, yeah. I needed to be fed that hope that I was going to see my husband again, mm. that we would be reunited in eternal life. And so I would listen to messages that would help me to understand what it feels like to live in a world that's just crazy. Cause guess what? Another big revelation was I'm not the only widow. Mm. So let me not live in this victim mindset because we're in I'm isolation, right? Exactly. Cause when exactly. we're struggling, we just think we're the only one. Nobody understands. Stay here. And eventually you realize, okay, some of these groups or support things might not suit me, but there's plenty of people who've actually gone through something similar. And if it's not that exact thing, it could be a different form of trauma or something that's, exactly that's affected right. them. That's yeah. exactly right. Yep. Yep. And so, so yeah, the first part was just, um, feeding my mind more positive messages because inside of my head, I was just going crazy. 
you know? The other thing that happened was um, I started to pay attention to, and it, it kind of came as a fluke, but it made more sense later. I just kind of started paying attention to what I was eating. And if I was giving myself, um, you know, if, if, if I was eating vi- um, not vitamin, vegetables, fruits, you know, things like that, or was I just trying to grab something fast and fried, you know? When so I started almost to nurturing to- your body as well as your mind in small ways. Right, right, right. And so ironically about, um, it was three, I don't remember if it was two or three years. It might've been three years after Richard passed. Um, I had an opportunity to go to the Johnson and Johnson human performance Institute because I was selected to be a part of, um, uh, a pitch contest that was put on by Mika Brzezinski from morning Joe. And so when I was selected for that, I was put into a group with, two other women, and we were paired up with life coaches. And what they teach at HPI is how our emotional, mental, spiritual, and physical are all connected. So now I've been doing this personally for two or three years now, right? But I had no context of exactly what I was doing. Now you see a framework. Yeah. Yes. And so now I'm in this place where I'm like, aha. At that point, I think I fooled myself that I I was healed, that I was okay. I was fine. But then when I got there, I was thinking, okay, now I can really be intentional with this. And I think that catapulted my healing to another level because I had the framework to really understand, like, I'm a single mom, right? I need to make sure I have the right energy to show up for my son. If I'm not eating right, or if I'm not eating well, like meaning I'm not eating as often as I should or the right foods that I should, then my energy is going to be deflated which means that I'm going to be more prone to being short with him or to uh, losing my cool or to just like not even be in tune with his needs, right? But if I'm making sure that I'm fueling my body, you know this, what you eat impacts your mental well-being. And so it allowed me to show up and be a uh, my best self for him instead of me just like giving him like what's left at me at the end of the day, you know? Yeah. So so the, it really started with me just recognizing what was going on in my head, choosing to remove any external factors that were creating more negativity, feeding myself with more positive messages, and then just paying attention to how I was treating my body, you know, also creating quiet time. So I had some of that soul care, you know, so that I just, I allowed myself to face all of the negative emotions because I felt like it was like a riptide. I could fight it and I could be tired. Or I could just go with it, and eventually I knew I would come out. So did you cover all the HEAL at the acronym? Um, oh, you, you, Yeah, let's go back there. So you did Healthy Boundaries. <laughs> yes, yeah, so H is for Healthy Boundaries. E is for Embrace Emotions. So that's the riptide, right? Okay, yeah. You allow yeah. yourself to embrace those emotions. You will come out of that. Yeah. Um, a is for Accepting What Is. Whew, that's the, probably to- the hardest. It is really hard. And I think that, again, that is why um, my therapist was so great in that. Again, that was early on, but it stuck with me. It was a seed that was planted. Because if you accept what has happened, then you are starting at that point. Yeah. You can if build you from there. Yeah. Exactly. If you don't accept what's happened, you're living in the past. Or you're thinking too much of the future and we can't control the future. So you really have to accept where you are now and then you can start building from there. And then L is for loving yourself, which we all struggle with, you know, until you are really focused on self 
self-care and what I call soul care. You know, I think that it's natural for us to give so much out and not take care of what we need to. But if you do that, H-E-A-L, I mean, that really is a solid foundation to get through just life because life is crazy. (laughs) (laughs) In conclusion, let's end the podcast now. Life is crazy. In conclusion, life is crazy. It is. And you need a solid foundation in order to survive. But what I'm also hearing is that there's a lot that's in our control. Yes, there's a lot that's out of our control. But what you're saying is be present, focus in on the things that are in your control, such as the food you put in your body, the the mindfulness, the loving, the self-care, like all of those uh, parts of it. How are you like surviving during this time? Because I'm just remembering first year, lose your house, lose your car, lose your job, you know, all this sort of stuff. And and now I know that you're you're coaching and you're working with workplaces and stuff. How are you even showing up? Or, or were people helping you out? Or what was that bit like? Yeah, so when I, so I, uh, November the following year, 2014, I sold my house. I closed on a Friday. And then following Monday, I walked in and was let go. Now, part of the story, yeah. So again, my boss was great. It was out of his control. He and I talked, you know, kind of through it. And he made sure that they gave me a very, they gave me a severance, but a menial severance. I mean, like it covered six weeks of living, right? So I'm like, okay, well, I'll just, you know, take that. Um, a lot of people don't know this, but we didn't even have life insurance. So I literally started from ground zero. (laughs) So I had that little bit of severance from the boss. I just closed on my house. So I knew that could hold me Oh, what I made from that could hold me over three months of living expenses. So I knew that I had three months to figure out what I'm going to do. Which let's be real here is not a long time. It is nothing. Especially when you're in a crisis kind of post-trauma place (laughs) where you're like, now sort stuff out. You talked about the fog and I'm like, sort your whole life out in three months when you're filled with fog. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. So interestingly enough, right before I was let go, October, before I was let go, there was something planted in my heart that remember I told you the year before, I feel like God spoke to me and said, you're going to take your pain, turn into purpose and pay it forward. So October the following year, I thought, well, maybe that'll be like a nonprofit because now I can teach people about transitioning back to the workplace. I can help widows you know, learn about how do I manage my grief if I have to still show up and produce. Uh, I didn't know I was getting ready to be let go. So I was like, oh, maybe I shouldn't be teaching this, but either way. (laughs) So, so because that thought had been planted in my mind the month before, when I was let go, I remember walking out of the office, getting into my car and turning on my radio. And there is this sermon that was on and it said, sometimes you, it said, you have to keep your laughter and keep your joy because it will get you through the toughest times. And I started laughing because I was like, maybe this is what I needed to have the courage to step out on my own and be an entrepreneur and build something of substance. So I was like, okay, I'm not going to, of course, my confidence was shot. I mean, I was like, really? Like, first of all, how are you going to do this to a widow? And yeah. like, I don't yeah. want to go through this. You know, when you lose your job, your confidence, and that had never happened to me before. So I was just, floored. But by the time I heard that message, it changed my mindset about what had just happened. And I looked at it as an opportunity to create what I wanted to. So I relied on my skills of recruiting and I thought, okay, I know how to recruit. I have been a headhunter before. So let me get some one-off jobs because Mm -hmm. those can pay and kind of help to hold me over. Yeah. I lied to you not. 
by the time the money ran out, yeah, it was coming into tax season. Whew. I got a return that held me one more month. And at the end of that month, I closed my first job. So like, I'm literally like, I don't know where money is coming from next week. <laughs> like that's and how I'm Can I just say, because I've been in business myself for about a year now, fully myself. So first of all, the entrepreneur journey is just stressful. Then single parenthood, any parenthood, the single parenthood is stressful. And so you got the survival thing just to make hands meet. You got, you're a single parent. And then you've got the trauma, anger, like stuff that grief that you're still working through that is never linear. It's never like it started and then it finished. And then I built a business. It's like this, right? In the middle, right? And exactly. I imagine as I have had that you've had moments of like a brutal self doubt and questioning whether you're on the right path. Absolutely. And that's real. I mean, we could have a whole nother podcast episode about that, but this is why you are my soul sister, because yes, you get it. It is not just one thing. It was so many. And, and even in the midst of these um, trials of being an entrepreneur, I'm thinking, am I making the right decision for my son? Yeah, you know, so am smart. I really providing? And then I'm like, well, I haven't had stability in this long. And this is all because of Richard's death. And why did this have to? I mean, it is just a mess in our minds. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I feel like I have had uh, triple whammies of just hardships, you know, and uncertainty and doubt and even discouragement, you know, of just so when I stepped into that and I relied on my recruiting skills. It held me over for a little bit, but then my friend challenged me, um, maybe about six months into it. She said, well, Karen, when are you going to help the grievers? Because that's where your heart is. And I said, well, I can't make money that way. Like I have to take care of Caleb. She said, I'm not so sure about that. She said, let's look at the numbers. Think so we started the box. Just, okay. Yep. So she said, let's just look. So I looked to see like, if I were to help 1% of the widows and we'll just say in the United States. What would that translate to? And that's where we started. It just got really granular. Let's get down to, if we just did this part right here, mm-hmm. how can we kind of build and how can that take care of the family? So I started on that journey and it's evolved from, I'm going to help leaders learn how to manage grief in the workplace and help grievers, not just widows, help them manage their emotional state while they need to produce at work. So that's where it started. Yeah. Then it transitioned into, well, I really just want to help the grievers because I'm learning that these tools have helped me. And if you can take care of yourself, then it makes a ripple effect in your life. So everything around you will be good. And I recognize I started to make that shift because I was getting so much pushback from corporate America and they did not want to talk about grief. We still don't want to talk about grief. Well, you don't want to talk about a lot of things. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it was really like, you know, we, if we talk about, if we get this training, then we admit that there's a problem. And, 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 but, is, and then what? And then what? Right. And then, right. And so then the fears kick, kick in about, well, we have the skills, well, we have the resources, well, we have to, like, well, we have the empathy, well, we have the compassion. Not that that would be their language, but will we know That's what those to... Those are their thoughts, though. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. but what, will we know what to do with it? Will we know how to fix it? Will we have the resources? I know with the, with the, some of the training that I do with, with leaders around mental health in the workplace, um, it's very much the fear that... Now it's all going to be fluffy. Productivity is going to go down. It's all about, you know, let's all sing around a fire and sing Kumbaya. I don't know what people right. think, right? 
and but they're I'm, like, I don't want to be a counselor, something like that. Or I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm not a counselor, so therefore I right. will ask nothing, you know, and let's just all be numbers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but there's something I think that we're both aligned on, which is empathy and compassion. Just like your friend that you referred to in your TED Talk, sometimes it's just about showing up, right? It's just it's so easy. It's so easy. It's body language. It's noticing. It's it's getting away from your phone or your technology for one fucking second and noticing. Hey, active listening. Yeah. Active listening. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's just connection and seeing the humanness of all of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, so okay. So you test it out in the workplace. They're like, "Ooh, we don't have any grief here," which is ridiculous. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then you're like, "Okay, there's a wider purpose," and so you began build, building from that place. Yeah. So then I thought to myself, well, okay, I I definitely want to help individuals. And I think that I can help them in a way that is not just going to be, um, uh, like they're just not going to say, Oh, this sounds good. And maybe this will work, but like, I can actually walk them through a process. That's what I was thinking. Like, how can I take them on a journey from that place of despair to feeling whole and healthy? That was my goal. But as I'm thinking about that with them, I haven't let go of corporate America. And so these are working and I feel like a little double minded, but I'm like, no, that there's so much sin. It has to work together. You know, it's people So then I in both places, right? right? That's right. Exactly. So then I recognize, well, instead of leading with the problem of grief, lead with the solution because all the research was showing me through the center of positive organization out of the university of Michigan or um, all these other research studies, you know, Google did one called project Aristotle where they found that empathy was the heart of their high success, their highly successful and highest performing teams. And so I thought, well, okay, if I'm not focusing on the problem, what is the solution? The solution is compassion and empathy. Is there a framework to that? So when I started to compile all this research and find that, yes, there actually is a super simple framework, then that's when I started to um, come back to corporate America with this different offering. So it's like you were speaking their language of a solution to something rather than going, here's the problem. Let's yeah, get, right. Let's tackle it. <laughs> yeah, okay. Exactly. Okay. So it's like you just needed to iterate your business model in a way that made sense to them. But, and what I'm saying and what is beautiful about, I think all of the people I interview with my own story as well is that our pain, you know, we're learning. We might just be one step ahead of who we're passing stuff on to, you know, we might just be two mm-hmm. steps ahead. We're just like, we're still learning and we're still developing. And, and, and unless you're taking that first step and taking those risks and, and the driver is coming from that place of healing yourself, right? Being a be- the, good, the best mom, providing, like doing all of that stuff. Um, and then over time, you begin to build the evidence that there actually may be some purpose over time. That's exactly it. That's, and I saw a study and, um, I, oh no, it was in the book, The Power of Now, uh, with Eckhart Tolle. He said, so when somebody says, well, what's the evidence to this? He says, you want evidence? Be the evidence. Whew. That's how true it is. That's how real it is. Like when I coach people, I'm not coaching you anything that I have not used myself. And now if I share a resource like that trauma therapy, then that's a resource. But if I am coaching you on something, it's because I've lived it out and it helped me to get from a point where I wanted to die to now I'm like, no, actually I want to do something purposeful. And I think that's what we all want to do. I think we want to have purpose in this life, but But when I started doing all that research, what helped me was, and what helped me really open up the offerings for my business in corporate America was that 
When we practice compassion and empathy on a day-to-day -day basis, if we are in a board meeting, if we are at the water cooler, if we are just simply interacting human to human, if we do that on a day-to-day -day basis, that is mastery preparation for the time of crisis. You won't even have to think twice when somebody is going through something because you've already created a workplace that is so people-focused where you already care about each other that it is natural for you to step in if they say, I found out that my spouse has cancer or I just went through this. You've created a psychologically safe workplace, allows people to be their full self. And now you are constantly, even if something happens in the organization, like maybe you have to go through um, a, a reorg or something yeah, yeah. unsettling. Yeah. You all are still a cohesive unit because you've been building that together. And that's when I was like, Oh, like everything just like came together. I was like, it's not, it is about grief, but I don't want to just talk about grief. I want to talk about healing. I want to talk about compassion and empathy because that's what's going to help us to just continue to evolve as humans. And so let's go get granular for a minute and be like, what does empathy look like, like in the workplace? And I just want our listeners to really get this because they're super nice concepts. We get them. We're like, yeah, empathy, compassion. We've read some of the research and we, we go out to businesses and we know the link between productivity. But like, if we just simplify it, what does it actually look like? So you're at the water cooler or you're in the business meeting and like, what, what is leading with empathy and compassion? Yeah, here's a great example. So say we're in a meeting and we're dialoguing about a problem that's come up and we need to create a solution. We'll just say there's 10 people in the room. You're noticing that somebody is, is not contributing to the conversation. And so you say to them, Hey, Petra, I'm noticing that, you know, you, you haven't really contributed. What are your thoughts? You know, what do you think would be a good solution? That is inviting them to contribute and you're noticing that they are withholding. They may be withholding and you don't know this and you don't need to know this, but they may be withholding because they feel like their response is, uh, is silly or idiotic, right? Or they think, well, no, this couldn't help. I mean, they're just, whatever is going on in their head, but because you've noticed their, uh, body language, because you have tuned into their feelings, which in that case is just their being reserved, right? Yeah, yeah. And you respond in a way that is with care. That is how you show empathy. You're just saying, hey, I want you to be a part of this conversation. I invite you to contribute to what we are talking to. Another way to do it is if you're in the middle of a heated conversation. <clears throat> Ooh. And yeah, and you're like, oh, we're not seeing eye to eye. And but here's how you bring empathy in. And I, I love when leaders, I, I, t I share this and it's like this light bulb goes off. What you have to think about is not you, not how the person is responding to you, but what is the solution that you're trying to get to? Are you even both trying to get to the same solution? And so what you can say in that moment is, hey, well, I feel like we're not on the same page. Let's pause for a second and just talk about like, where do we want to get with this? Okay, we need to make sure this is delivered by seven o'clock. Okay, so what do you think we should do to get this delivered by seven o'clock? Then they share their, oh, this could happen. Okay, that sounds really good. Well, what if we did it this way? In that moment, not only did I invite them to contribute, not only did I validate that I heard them because I said, oh yeah, that sounds good, but I also offered another frame of thinking, which is saying, we're it's not about me, it's not about you, it's about the solution that we just agreed upon. By expressing empathy, 
you are now using two brains instead of one. You've now created an ecosystem instead of an ego system saying that you want to be right to get to that. And now you are working towards a solution and a common goal just by saying, I want to hear what you have to say. I'm actively listening to that. And now we're still working through the dialogue so that we can get to this point that serves the organization or serves this, you know, problem or solution. Absolutely. And then I guess the, the steps, so that's creating that baseline of culture of, you know, how people even communicate and see each other and notice and collaborate and be inclusive and, and, and create solutions to problems. And then I guess the next step is if somebody is uh, having some difficulty, you know, um, uh, my son's on drugs and is in rehab and it's making, it's stressing me out or, uh, you know, I've just been divorced or we've, right. we've just moved like, oh, you know, the, the myriad of things that are not quite in the trauma zone, but in the middle right. life zone. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, they might be more likely to come to that leader uh, to, to explain or that leader might be able to notice quicker. Mm-hmm. Oh, like some, mm-hmm. like, do you want to have a couple minutes to talk um, outside of the meeting or, you know, mm-hmm. just having yeah. that sort of approach that brings in the whole person to work, not just the, you know, this is my work hat and this is my home hat. Like, I feel like the world of work is changing. Um, yeah. Maybe in smaller businesses and uh, here in the UK, certainly, and with the younger generation sort of uh, coming in. Um, mm-hmm. but, but there's and some... you can't just wear that work hat and home hat. And because I read a study where they interviewed a group of leaders who they kind of worked through emotional intelligence and like, how do you show up for one another? How do you create that psychologically safe workplace? And so they were interviewing them and saying, how has this impacted you? And one of the um, participants said, well, my wife likes me more and my kids are talking to me more because we can't turn it off. And so I really think that an an employment situation, being in somebody's employer is such a great opportunity to make a massive impact in their life because you are helping to equip them with the tools that are really basic life tools. How do we interact with one another and show care so that we are building each other up? That's what it comes down to. And you can't turn that off whether you're at home or work. So it's about you're putting those foundation steps in place, as you described, so that you can be your best self no matter who you're interacting with. And if we that can cool. all have a little bit of that, what a magical world we'll live in. Can you imagine what our world would look like if we were if we were literally thinking, I want to help build you up? And I'm, I mean, we do the work within ourselves. You have to. But we actually care to think about that for somebody else be amazing. Well, and isn't that where the purpose in our pain sort of the, the source of it comes from? Um, mm-hmm. So we, it's almost like we need to have that catalyst point to really have the compassion and empathy for what other people might be gr- going through. That's um, true. We could talk about the workplace stuff like forever. We could talk about, you know, little habits and tips and whatever. What are the most important habits that you have uh, in your life now? And I guess What's the big dream moving forward? Are you, I, I mean, you were all like in the present before and now I'm like, Ooh, are we looking forward a little bit? Like, what are you building? Yes, 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 yes. Well, I first, the biggest habits that I have learned, um, actually come through interactions with my son because he's eight and, um, I sometimes have to remind him, listen, I don't know where he gets perfectionism from. I try not to show him that I struggle with that, <laughs> of course. but, but, but as I'm teaching him patience with himself, I'm reminding myself of that, right? I tell him, I'm like, Caleb, you're still learning, buddy. It's okay that you, you're not getting it right away. And he's actually a really bright kid. But man, if he doesn't get a hundred or an A, he's like crumbled. I'm like, dude, that's okay. So I have to remind myself that as I still feel like I'm on this healing journey, I still do have bad days. 
I still, you know, have those moments that just like take me to my knees and I'm just feeling like, why, why is this happening? As guess what? An entrepreneur, as a single parent, as a widow, it can come from any direction. Sure. Or all three at once. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Exactly. Because they're all intertwined. Yeah. But I think that that's really a big thing for me right now. A major theme in my life is like just continuing to give myself that grace as I move forward and go through and as I continue to level up, even as my business, you know, new challenges and and new experiences. Um, And speaking of leveling up, yeah, I have a really, really big plan for all of this. So, you know, ultimately on the uh, my company side agency, it is to be able to do um, culture shifts. That means we go into your organization and from top to bottom, everybody knows that this is a psychologically safe workplace and they are being fed um, through e-learning different habits that help to continue to cultivate that, right? Um, On the individual side, it's everything from my e-course that I just launched, Heal Forward. It's a six-week course that teaches people a lot of the habits that I use to rebuild my life. Um, But it's also as far uh, fetched as doing conferences and doing retreats that are all around wellness and people come in and tell their story like you, you're already on my list. I was hoping you would say that. (laughs) I was hoping I'd be on the list. Lovely. (laughs) But the point with those um, larger experiences is that you're hearing a lot more stories. You're hearing things that you would, could never imagine. And we feel that about our own sometime, right? Like, I can't even believe I went through this. But when you hear it from other people, I think that's what reminds us that we are all connected. We are literally connected through the human spirit. And everybody has felt pain in some way, shape, or form. And we should be lifting each other up. We should be helping to rebuild our lives and, and, and sharing what we're learning with other people. Um, so there's a lot of good stuff that's kind of percolating in my brain that I'm ready to get out in the world, but it all has to do with how can we use our pain? That's inevitable. It's going to happen. How can we use that to help not only serve ourselves, but serve others? It's, I like to say it's taking our lemons and making lemonade. Oh, I love it. That's, that's like the perfect conclusion. We might have to use that as the title. Um, if people want to find you or work with you in any way, where can they find you? Yeah, everything that you would need to get a hold of me or to find either support for individuals or organizations is at KarenMillsap.com. And that's with two L's. And, uh, and yeah, you can also follow uh, my GrowFlow community. That's where I have a lot of resources for individuals, free resources, also soul care coaching and, and e-courses. Um, but that's where you can find everything is KarenMillsap.com. And of course, feel free to reach out if there's anything that you need. Absolutely. Well, Karen, we will put all of that into the show notes. Thank you so much, I have to say, for coming onto the show, for your vulnerability and sharing your story, but mostly for your personal growth and for continuing to show other people how to create some purpose from their pain. I appreciate it so much. Well, thanks for having me, Petra. Thanks for listening to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. Please do subscribe and review on iTunes. Every comment makes a difference. We really appreciate hearing from you. And please do get in touch through PetraBelzebor.com if you're interested in any training, coaching, therapy, or just to join the community and get more information on ways that you can build your own resilience. Until next time.